Hello and welcome to episode number 27 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I'll be chatting with Susan Gray and Bonnie Walsh, the co-directors of a new documentary called Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. Also joining in on the conversation is Melanie Wallace, a former series producer for the PBS science mainstay, Nova. These days, Melanie is working as an impact producer, helping other filmmakers find an audience for their work. Around the world, scientists are working to better understand a critical piece in the climate puzzle, something known as feedback loops, irreversible chain reactions that are being set in motion by the Earth's rising temperatures. Narrated by Richard Gere, the film Climate Emergency Feedback Loops highlights the efforts of the world's top climate scientists as they address these urgent questions. Are we approaching a point of no return, leading to an uninhabitable Earth? Or do we have the vision, the will, and the ability to work together to slow, halt, and reverse course? Earth is warming, caused by the burning of fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas, filling the atmosphere with heat-trapping gases like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, at levels humans have never seen before. As the world debates how much more warming the planet can take, one and a half degrees Celsius, two degrees Celsius, the climate crisis escalates. The problems are that the world is becoming too hot for the present distribution of people, agriculture, human welfare, and human interest. And it's getting worse. But it's more than our emissions heating the globe. Something else is at work here. The rising temperatures are setting in motion Earth's own natural warming mechanisms that then feed upon themselves. George Woodwell, a distinguished scientist and a lion of the environmental movement, has been sounding the alarm about them for the past 50 years. In a 1989 Scientific American article, he wrote that warming caused by human activity, rapid now, may become even more rapid as a result of the warming itself. 30 years later, climate activist Greta Thunberg repeated his warning, calling them irreversible chain reactions. The popular idea of cutting our emissions in half in 10 years only gives us a 50% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees and the risk of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control. 50% may be acceptable to you, but those numbers do not include tipping points, most feedback loops, additional warming hidden by toxic air pollution or the aspects of equity and climate justice. So what exactly are irreversible chain reactions? What scientists refer to as feedback loops. Beginning on May 19th, the four primary feedback loops covered in the film will serve as the backbone of a series of virtual screenings and panel discussions hosted by the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. A discussion of forests as a feedback loop will be up first, with follow-up screenings and conversations taking place over the next three months. 
Registration information will be included in the program notes for this podcast episode. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And now on to my conversation with Susan Gray, Bonnie Walsh, and Melanie Wallace. Hello and welcome to Making Media Now. Uh, We have a Making Media Now first this time. I am speaking with uh, three guests. So it's anybody's guess how that one turns out. But welcome uh, to Making Media Now, uh, Bonnie Walsh, Susan Gray, and Melanie Wallace. And all three of these women are involved in a very important film called Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. So in terms of their role, Susan Gray is the director. Bonnie Walsh was the producer. Susan and Bonnie are credited as co-writers. And Melanie Wallace, who is the uh, former senior series producer at Nova for quite some time, uh, is now operating as an outreach producer. And we're going to get into what that means. But let's just say that she has put to use her considerable influence, experience and know-how uh, to help filmmakers who are making films concerned, particularly with climate issues, uh, get their films out in the world and to really take advantage of current best practices in terms of uh, distribution and, you know, work working with state of the art technologies such as this one uh, to uh, build audiences uh, for very, very important films. Uh, so welcome to all three. Thank you. Good to be here. So who wants to go first? Please define for me a feedback loop. OK, I'll take this one. <laughs> and this is Bonnie. Thank you, Bonnie. Sure. A feedback loop when we're talking about climate systems is a sort of vicious cycle where um, something causes other things to happen, which then exacerbates the warming. So in terms of global warming, uh, it's considered a positive feedback when something gets set into motion. For for example, when the permafrost starts thawing, um, methane and carbon dioxide gases are released into the atmosphere, which then warms the atmosphere further, which then causes more permafrost to thaw. So it's a vicious cycle. There are negative feedback loops in the system that actually uh, do the opposite and actually cool the planet. But positive feedback loops are considered amplifying warming loops. And your film uh, focuses on four feedback loops. They are forest, permafrost, atmosphere, and something called the albedo effect. Um, Please define for us the albedo effect. Well, albedo is um, the reflection of sunlight. And the albedo effect happens at... um, mainly, well, it happens at both poles. Uh, So the ice and snow that cover the poles reflect um, 85 to 90% of the sun's rays back into space, keeping the planet cool. And so when um, the warming causes snow and ice in the Arctic to melt, it allows much more sunlight to hit the earth and melt ice in the Arctic Ocean. 
and melt snow and permafrost on land, which creates more warming. So that is its own feedback loop. Um, and it's, it has to do with the reflection at the poles. Are those four the most pressing feedback loops that are, that are currently at play uh, within the climate crisis? Or uh, are, they just, are those just the four that you chose to focus on? In those four films, we actually cover about a dozen different feedback loops. So when we did the research for the project, we um, started looking at all the different feedback loops that were out there. And there are there are dozens of them. But we ended up finding these sort of main I would say 12 that fit into the categories of the four programs. We also have an introduction film, by the way, that just talks about what feedback loops are. Right. And then the other four films we have, we decided on those topics because each one really covered several different feedback loops. So those are, I would say, the major ones. But for our listeners' benefits to define the structure of these uh, four films that you're, you're speaking of, these are rather short. Uh, films they they run around fifteen minutes or so, but the entire film, if I'm correct, uh, will be on PBS later this year. Correct? Yes. the The five films together run about fifty eight minutes. Okay. And so we did cut a one hour broadcast version that will be on television around the world. Really, it's it's being sold globally, and it will be on PBS in December. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. When you're taking on as filmmakers and as filmmakers with a, you know, who gravitate toward telling science stories, when you're taking on a, a, a topic uh, as all encompassing as climate change, how do you know where to begin? Susan Gray here. Uh, we didn't start with climate change. It was really on the contrary. We started with this concept of feedback loops. Uh, and it was Barry Hershey, who's a fellow filmmaker and a philanthropist and a Buddhist who had been reading a lot about it. And he didn't think people knew what feedback loops were. And um, so he brought the idea and said, what do you think about turning this into some kind of a film? It was just that this is really scary and people should know about these. That, that was how it all began. And throughout the entire project, we really focused on just sticking to feedback loops. Mm -hmm. What is a feedback loop? What we found out, you know, Bonnie and I started going out and talking to people was that he was right. The general public doesn't know about feedback loops and the scientists are terrified by feedback loops. This is right. the one thing that really makes you appreciate why this is a climate emergency because the earth has its own opinion in all of this and it's starting to warm itself. And that's basically what's happened is we've kicked into motion these feedback loops and they've reached tipping points where suddenly there's no going back and the world really changes as we know it. So yeah, having we, seen that's really served us is sticking to something really finite because we didn't know if this would ever get seen. I mean, there are a million climate films out there, but by sticking to this one simple concept, all you have to understand is these feedback loops, uh, then you'll get it. And by building one on top of the next, on top of the next, by the time you see all of them, you get what a, an emergency we're in and why we should all be scared. And we really wanted to focus on the science. There are a lot of climate change films out there. As Susan said, there's tons of films about the climate, but this, we really just wanted to focus on the science of feedback loops. So that's what really informed our decisions about what to include. Yes. And having seen uh, the film in its entirety uh, with all all five of the segments in, in, included, 
Um, you do a fantastic job at not um, watering down the science at all, but making it very accessible, uh, you know, to the lay person. And um, you do a great job in terms of incorporating graphics and animation into illustrating this phenomenon. I mean, you know, unless I'm misinterpreting what I'm hearing when I hear feedback loops is essentially, um, you know, the, this uh, this repeating system of either positive or negative outcomes. And when you when you step away from it, you can come to the conclusion that that from a uh, climate standpoint, feedback loops are impacting literally everything because when, you know, it's, it's difficult. You can't imagine the earth outside of talking about forests, permafrost atmosphere. And while the albedo effect might be feel a little bit esoteric, once it's explained and illustrated as it is in your film, uh, it makes a lot of sense as co-writers how do you sort of sit down and say, OK, this is a complex issue. And as, as you've both alluded to, there's a lot of content out there uh, that's addressing climate change or climate change issues. Um, you know, how do we inform but not overwhelm uh, or frighten? How do you thread that needle uh, as as writers and media producers? Yeah, well, the writing was a, a challenge. And I think Susan and I worked really well together. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, we had great scientists that we interviewed who were just really clear at explaining the concepts. And we just worked, you know, we had we we had great sound bites from them and we just tried to really lay it out. Our goal was to lay it out in a way that people would really understand it, really set it up explain it. As you said, we had graphics to try to really hammer in this idea of the loops and the amplifying effect. And, uh, you know, it took a lot of, took a lot of passes. <laughs> and at one point we had reviewers, we had a whole range of reviewers look at our rough cuts to see how they were working. Cause we were so close to it. We, we, it was really hard to tell. And we had a range of people from, you know, high school students to college professors, to middle school science teachers, to uh, people like Bill McKibben and Carl Safina, um, review the cuts. And we learned a lot from that. And we learned that, you know, some places we needed to parse it out a little more slowly and gradually and make things a little clearer. We were so focused on the science of the feedback loops that we, you know, they were kind of a little too depressing. So we, we decided to add endings that offered a little hope of what we could do to re reverse the loops, even though the films really don't tackle solutions. We just try to say at the end that this is, you know, we, we still have the chance to reverse the loops if we, if we can get to work. Right. Um, so that was really informative and that, that just helped us get to the final cuts really really well. I just would like to add one reason I think it works well is because it's not declarative statements, but it tries to inform and give an understanding about how the scientists have come to understand these concepts. So there's more about the process of understanding what they're observing, which is included. And I think that helps a lot. And that's that's Melanie. Uh, Wallace, who's uh, helping us out with those comments. Melanie, you have spent a career telling science stories for mass audiences. Yes. What about this? What what was it about this particular film 
that uh, that got your attention and made you feel like this was a story that you want to do whatever you can to make sure it gets the exposure and the reach that it deserves? Well, that's a great question, Michael. And I think it's a very good question because I have known Bonnie and Susan for a long time and I've watched Bonnie develop her career And um, I knew they were working on this project and they were talking to me and we were discussing different things about it. And I like that it was so focused and so targeted and gave people useful information that they could take away and and think about and then think in their own lives. How can they use this information? And um, they were making this just at the right time in my life when I was going through a a transition. And I just got excited about bringing my contacts and networks to bear on trying to really get this story out worldwide. Mm -hmm. And um, because, you know, the thing at Nova that we always focused on was the process of scientific understanding. Mm-hmm. Don't just tell somebody something, but give them the information so they can understand why we come to understand something in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful tool. And I've seen people change their minds, you know, just to say, oh, there's a CO2 problem. We have too much CO2. Well, who figured that out? And how do we know that? Right. Well, that comes from an experiment in the last century. It's like, oh, there was a real experiment. Somebody actually didn't know this before they did the experiment and now they know it. Mm-hmm. And so you can come to know it as well. And, and it creates a, um, a an interplay between the scientists who are thinking and have questions they're trying to answer and people who also have questions they're trying to answer, but maybe haven't been trained as scientists and it tries to bring those together. And I just thought the approach that this team had taken was so powerful Mm -hmm. and that this is a fundamental understanding that needs to be spread so that solutions can be built on top of it. So I was thrilled to come and join them. So stepping back just a uh, just a moment, uh, Bonnie and Susan, um, how does this film, how does this project fit in with the type of uh, stories each of you have been telling uh, throughout your career? I, I started out as an environmental organizer. That's what I, I was a geologist in school. And this is one of the first things I did. I got out of school and thought we would get rid of Ronald Reagan right away, and James Watt, who was the interior <laughs> secretary of the interior at the time and was giving away our, our forests. And, you know, and then I could get back to being a geologist. And then I realized that that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. And then I stopped making environmental films. And now I'm coming back to it and, and see that the damage is even greater, even though we knew so much back then and what we should be doing. What made what led you um, and to, it's hard what to, led you to stop that first time around? I kind of felt like I was becoming a political hack and I didn't really know enough to be doing what I was doing. So I decided, to, you know, and I had a degree in geology. So I decided to go back to school and I got a master's in journalism and then I got a master's in international relations and economics. Uh, and then I sort of got on to films about racial equity and um, you know, politics and a lot of other things before I sort of circled back. But but I would say in your question to, you know, how do you start a film like this? You start it with the people. And the very first thing that we did was we interviewed this gentleman named William Muma, who um, 
had one of the first environmental studies programs mm-hmm. at Williams College. And then he's on the board of that time. It was the Woods Hole Research Center. Now it's the Woodwell Center for Climate Research. Uh, but he'd done the papers, the, uh, the international, the intergovernmental panel on climate change for the UN. And he was the rare combination of scientist and political activist and really polyglot. He knew so much. And um, he guided us and sort of really put a lot of emphasis on the natural systems and forests taking carbon out of the air. And people don't even understand that. They don't understand that old trees take out so much more than young trees and you can't cut down old forests. And it was really, really basic for us. Um, And told us about this guy, George Woodwell, who had sort of come up with this phrase about the earth warming the earth and and feedback loops. And he was 90 years old and we were going to lose him. And we ran out, we interviewed him and they steered us back to this one of the best research institutes, the best research institute on climate on the planet was in our backyard. You know, it was down in Falmouth uh, at sort of the Woods Hole in the Woods Hole complex. Mm We decided, Bonnie and I made a decision to just give these great scientists a voice. Just let them tell their stories. I mean, their characters and their people. And right. it's what Melanie is saying. They had spent their entire lives studying this thing. So that it's become so political, politicized that you think, well, do we really know? And it's, you know, the science. And they know they've been studying it for 50 years, but nobody's listening. And at the same time, we were... Using this strategy, we watched some footage of Greta Thunberg giving her speeches, and she was saying, listen, guys, you've got to worry about these irreversible chain reactions. It's way worse than we think it is, and you have to listen to the scientists. Don't listen to me. I'm a kid. Listen to the scientists. And that's exactly what we were doing with our films. So that's when this idea, well, let's get Greta to be part of this came, Mm -hmm. which is really hard to do. And even though we got to the Greta handlers, you know, she was going to school and she was so busy and she was making her own film. And, you know, she they said, look, if she would do anything, she would do this. It's exactly what she's saying. But she's so busy. Not going to happen. And and Barry, in the meantime, had um, all these contacts in the Buddhist community. He was very good friends with the Dalai Lama. I remember being in an event with the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama came off the stage and shook Barry's hand in front of the whole crowd. And, and um, he was trying to get your attention here. And so we said, well, well, yeah, let's, let's, well, then there's the whole Richard Gere. Well, should we use Richard Gere, you know, older white male? Is he the guy to be using? It, it took a long time to come to people like Richard Gere. Pretty women. Is that really what we want associated with this film? But, you know, he's one of the most respected Buddhists on the planet. And very he was true. Passionate and Richard, Richard Gere, just yes, for listeners, Richard Gere is the uh, narrator of the film. Yeah. Yeah. So then they went, okay, they had Richard, we had Richard narrating this. And then we, um, Barry had the idea, idea to, okay, well, let's approach the Dalai Lama because at the same time he came out with a book on climate change. And so we, we we ended up actually getting the book during all of this and reading the first page is a letter to Greta Thunberg saying, you know, how wonderful and inspiring the work is that she's doing. And that keeps him alive knowing the next generation is doing what they're doing. And they never met. So Barry asked the Dalai Lama, they'd never met, Barry asked the Dalai Lama, you know, could he be part of this? And um, he said, well, if, if Greta was a part of it, he wanted to meet Greta. If she was a part of it, he would be part of this. 
Wow. And Greta felt like, okay, well, if the Dalai Lama will be part of this, I'll be part of this. And the next thing we know, we had the Dalai Lama and Greta involved in the project, wow. which really skyrocketed things to a whole new level of interest. This I would was imagine. For, you know, this was for the launch event. We had an yeah. event to launch the series on January 10th. And that's where we put a panel together with the Dalai Lama, Greta, uh, William Muma, and Sunatali, who's one of the scientists in our film and permafrost mainly. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's the event. But because we were able to get footage of that conversation, we were able to add some of that into the one hour television film Mm -hmm. to make it unique. So Bonnie, just sticking with you for a moment to my prior question, how does this film fit in with the totality of the work that you've been doing in in your career as a, a storyteller and a filmmaker thus far? I'm a frustrated marine biologist, so (laughs) we got a former geologist and a frustrated marine biologist. What happens when they uh, get together? Yeah, but I was also double majoring in film in college. So when I decided I wasn't cut out to be a scientist, I thought, well, the perfect career for me would be to make science films. Did you watch a lot of Jacques Cousteau films when you were growing up? Oh, yes. And I got certified to scuba dive after studying marine biology at Stanford one summer. And I was all in with the, you know, the marine science stuff, but I just didn't want to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. I thought the best thing would be to be able to tell the story of science. And so I started a career in, in science films. Mm -hmm. And that's why. Yeah. So I, that's how I know Melanie. Um, uh, I did. I worked at Nova off and on a few times and I did a lot of science programming. I, I did stuff for Scientific American Frontiers, the show with Alan Alda that was on, you know, back in the 90s. I did um, a film for the Discovery Channel. I did, you know, I, I wrote some proposals for Nova. And then um, when I had kids, I didn't want to be working full time and traveling. So that's when I kind of shifted gears and became um, an executive director of Filmmakers Collaborative for 10 years. And then I got I got back into production, you know, six or seven years ago. And I ended up working um, mostly for museum media through mm-hmm. in Boston um, and some other freelance work I was doing. So then when this project came along, when Susan and I were both working at the same company together, um, I was pulled onto this by Susan because she'd heard I had a background in science films and I really hadn't done a science film for a while. I was mostly doing history for museums and I was so thrilled to be back in the science game. And I loved the topic and I just was so I felt like I finally was back doing what I was passionate about. And I, I just I love doing science programming. So it was it was just a huge, huge thrill for me to get back into it. And working with Susan was great. And we just had a great synergy. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot it, of fun. It, it was really fun. Yeah, it was a real treat to work with Bonnie. I mean, I really felt like I was working with a pro. I had been handed my golden ticket and the two of us really had a lot of fun. And I forgot to mention one of the biggest projects I worked on was with Melanie on this um project with Michael Ambrosino, who started Nova. He mm-hmm. went out on his own and we worked together on a physics series with Philip Morrison from MIT. Um, and that was that was a lot of fun. And that was the first time Melanie and I really got to work together. As, as, as creators of this type of content, and given the fact that all of you have been doing it for a considerable period of time, when you look at the when you look at the world, when you look at our country, 
what's your take on the relationship between people's everyday lives and what seems to be really sort of obvious no brainer kind of science and the cognitive dissonance that that you know sometimes exists i mean you you've immersed yourselves in your careers in understanding the science making the science palatable to a lay audience uh uh capturing it in uh in very engaging visuals and yet there does still seem to be well, that's all well and fine. That science, I'm going to put that up in a box and keep it on the shelf, but I got bills to pay or I've got a lifestyle that I don't even want to hear might be threatened. I'm just curious as not just filmmakers, but as, you know, as citizens also, uh, what's your take around getting over that hurdle? I don't think it's a one. Yeah, I don't think it's a one group. I don't I think you've got everything. I think you have people who are very aware of the science and very aware of the fact that things are not changing because the oil industry has been investing, we found out, over $50 million a year since 2008 in PR. And um, they've taken it into their own hands and they're very aware of their consumption and they're doing what they can, what they buy and how they live and what kind of cars they drive and what kind of solar panels. I think you have the, I'd say, you know, the PBS crowd, the majority of people became very aware with um, inconvenient truth. And I think that's when sort of the shoe dropped and everybody realized we've got a crisis on our hands and we all thought something would change. That was the moment where you kind of dared to look at how terrible things were and you were ready for things to change and they didn't, you know? And I think what Greta's done for everybody, she gets a lot of heat for having been so passionate in this, one of these speeches that she gave, but you know, she's a young person who dares to look at the truth of what's happening to her planet right. and look it right in the eye and know that we all feel, even though we theoretically live in democracies and should have a say in what our policymakers are doing, we don't. And her, the way they handle force in Sweden and the politicians and government officials in Sweden are the worst. You know, they're known for being the worst. And they still, even though they have her as a national treasure, are the worst, you know. And so... I think for all of us, the first step is looking at the truth. You've got to look at the truth. I mean, you, it's awful. You don't want to look it in the eye. It's so sad. It's easier to keep your head in the sand and you cry. I mean, you really, the more Bonnie and I were talking about not having, why do we have kids? We shouldn't have kids. I mean, it's bad. And then once you get past this grieving thing, then you can step back and say, okay, so what do we do about it? And I don't mm-hmm. think it's up to the high school student to you know, to use paper bags instead of plastic and worry about whether they're turning on the lights or not. I really think it's in the hands of our government officials. They have to make it easy to be good consumers. It's not going to be up to us to do it. And we have to hold them accountable and be aware of what they're doing. And I think that's looking at society today. That's the struggle on all fronts is are our representatives representing us? Are they representing the money interest and yep. and the answer so far has been pretty bleak, you know, so I think that's the struggle we're all in. And and it's, you know, we have one of our characters always says, don't talk about this as the hard work. Do Talk about this as an opportunity. Right. It's an opportunity for the planet to come together and realize that we don't really have borders when it comes to climate change. And it's an opportunity to change um, our technology and have jobs for everybody, which I think Biden is getting. Um, so there, you know, once you get past, I think that's what Greta has found. Once she got past it and she sat in front of the embassy 
she found a lot of like-minded people who sat in front of that embassy with her and they're out every Friday now striking. And I think, you know, that's what we hoped. We, we had a million choices to give for solutions in our films. And it, we kind of, the one solution we gave was Greta saying, all great movements have come from the people. And it's the people who are going to change things, you know, mm-hmm. use your voice and get out there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think she's right. I think that's the first step. And that was yeah, very long, Bonnie, your turn. You, you, well, you just made a, uh, you just made a reference to having children, and you know, as we we are recording this podcast on the uh, couple of days before Mother's Day, and as I was watching your film, and as I've watched some other films, and particularly kind of followed the new activism or you know around climate issues, it almost feels to me, you know, there's the there's the image of the you know Gaia, the 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 life force, the female life force in the planet. It feels to me from a strategic standpoint, that that's where the, I'm not saying solution, but where the real activity has to come from, almost from regardless of gender, but tapping into that notion of the sustainability literally of life. And, you know, if you look at this issue from a marketer's standpoint and think about all of the other um, issues or products or services that tap into that mindset of, of, of life giving life sustaining. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Greta, uh, is a, is a, is a girl. And I don't think that, uh, that it's a coincidence that so many of the young activists along these lines are female. Now, The problem comes when, as you alluded to, Susan, this becomes a nice little thing that the kids are interested in. Let's get them to recycle. And then once they enter the economy, let's remind them that their job, number one, is to be consumers. But I I do think that there's there's an opportunity, uh, particularly to mobilize um, female young females, but also anyone who's interested in the notion that, you know, Earth as a life-giving being and, and entity. Well, that's why I think it's important that these films that we're making are made accessible and available to students and in the education world. Right. Because I think getting young people to be familiar with how to see the world and how to think like a scientist and how to look around, they're very curious. I mean, they already are asking questions. So I think providing these kinds of resources for young people and encouraging them more into STEM is really important. And that's one thing that, you know, we're working together to get these films available because we have the whole 15, we have five 15 minute films, which are much more accessible often for the educational use so very than true. to take a one hour film. So we're, you know, we're, we're doing that, but we're finding a lot of receptivity. And um, I think it's hard work to get, students and teachers to incorporate this, but there's natural curiosity there. And, you know, that's one thing we're focusing on because I think it's a long-term view mm-hmm. of getting people to see the world and to see themselves as actors and they can make a difference. So along those lines uh, to, to advance the odds that the film, you know, is going to have that impact. I, I think the idea of almost chapterizing, uh, the film is a, is a fantastic one because you're able to take a, a snapshot of each of these feedback loops and then you can get as granular with it as the, you know, the uh, the setting will allow. But aside from the um, 
PBS airing at the end of this year. Uh, I know that there's an event coming up uh, the middle of this month, May May 19th at the Smithsonian. Uh, so it would be great if somebody could talk about that and how you see that event playing into the, um, you know, the distribution and the rollout of the film. Yeah, I'm happy to do that, but you can't just drop what you just said and then we don't all get to answer. I mean, this concept of the feminine on the planet and Gaia, I think it's really important and sustainability. And I think that's the first Sometimes I just ramble and people wait for me to stop. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It's so I was like, Michael, I'm, wow, I'm so impressed you just said that. Um, that's one of the first things George Woodwell made us understand is it's a living, breathing planet that can take care of itself. Just sustain it. Let it go. I mean, that's what the Native American culture did. They understood when you took, you gave back. Right. And this idea that it's the, the female on this planet has been suppressed for at least the last 5,000 years. I mean, there's no question about it. I've been dying to do a documentary on the witches that were burned in Europe. They're millions. I mean, it's not like this country. We talk about Salem, that it was complete suppression of women and and suppression of the Native American culture and this idea that it's very male driven. You know, the idea that you just take as much as you need is so the antithesis of capitalism, which is, you know, get out. No, we're no longer at war on the battlefield. We're at war out in the marketplace. And we're going to take as much as we can possibly get and conquer. And and it's unfortunately we're living on a finite planet and you can't do it forever because it all depends on resources and the big economic booms that we've had over the last decades have been because we've gotten cheap things from China and we're all full. Our houses are full of all this stuff that we never had a hundred years ago. And it's, it's taken its toll on the planet. So is it, I think it, it falls to women really to, to take the lead in this and to understand there's another way of living. Bonnie. I also think it's really interesting that there are a lot of groups that we found with names like mothers out front and mm -hmm. The Catherine Hayhoe group. Science moms. Science, Science moms. moms. Yes, we chatted about so, them. You know, yeah. you don't see like fathers out front. <laughs> you know, it does seem like the moms <laughs> are kind of embracing this and knowing that if they're, you know, they want to preserve the planet for their their children. And it is a very female driven thing. And this idea of Gaia, Mother Earth and, you know, the Earth, as Susan said, it should be just left alone. The Earth knows how to take care of itself. It has systems in place for absorbing carbon and keeping it cool. And this idea that we just have to let it do its thing. It is it it does seem to me that it is kind of along the lines of indigenous people and and women. Um, and then, oh, shoot, I was going to say something else and I just blanked. Well, um, in your film also, I can't remember who said it, but 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 one of the scientists that you spoke with uh, really hit the nail on the head. And he said, it's not the earth I'm worried about. The earth, the earth is going to do what the earth does. Right. It's humans. And what what is fascinating is that the collective mindset. Or, or at least the if it's not a collective mindset, it's a very vocal minority mindset seems to think, no, 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 no. This this is sort of manifest destiny. Uh, we'll tell the earth how things are going to work. Well, talk to me during the next hurricane. Yeah, exactly. No, it is. It is this hubris yeah. that humans have that they can control things. <laughs> And so, uh, so we were chatting just a little bit more about how, this, how the Smithsonian event plays into, you know, the, the planned rollout of the program. But 
But Susan, I didn't want to cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh, well, we can talk about this, Smithsonian. I was just going to say that Bonnie and I talked to um, one of our, we did lots of interviews with people before we picked who we were going to actually end up with. And he made the point that, yes, humanity can adapt to changing climate. But in the past, we've done it. But there weren't seven and a half billion people on the planet. And that, um, you know, in the case of the war in Syria, what we've had a, a million refugees and we just couldn't handle it. And the idea that we could have billions of climate refugees is a disaster that we can't can't cope with. We just can't. So so you're right. You know, Carrie, that was Carrie Emanuel who makes, yeah. that, made that quote from MIT. OK, great. Humanity is not going to do well. Um, the Smithsonian is rolling out our our short films. There are five of them in um, a summer film series. And the first one's already played. It was at the Environmental Film Festival that's usually held in D.C. And Smithsonian's a host. They have it at the Natural History Museum. Uh, And so the Natural History Museum then wanted to spend each month on a different feedback. So the first one's going to be forests. Then it's going to be albedo. And then I think it's going to be permafrost. I think so. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the order. One a month. And then um, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. One a month in May. June. And then the, the idea was you're supposed to watch the film and you're supposed to watch the film before the actual day of the event. And the event will be a panel. And we really did not focus a lot on solutions in our films. That was a conscious choice. So what we're trying to do is have the solutions on the panels. So we have really great experts on these panels and they'll, you know, talk about the feedback loop, but they'll present what some of the solutions could be and should be. That's all the Smithsonian says they're doing this summer. So we're really thrilled. Wow. That's a fantastic Um, opportunity. And the panels are free. You just have to go to the website at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and register. And well, then, I, I will make sure that uh, when this podcast drops in the program notes for the podcast, all of the relevant links are included. So listeners of the podcast uh, can access those and we'll be sharing uh, filmmakers collaborative. will be sharing to their entire network, uh, okay. not just the podcast, but all of the uh, information um, are, are around the associated events. I've got one kind of last question. Uh, maybe it'll lead to other questions. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about kind of putting the science first. And I'm wondering from each of you, if the experience of a year in COVID has given you hope uh, or, or made you shake your head in dismay around where science, what role science plays in shaping a collective response to a, um, a global issue. Well, given how the world has not been able to come together to solve the COVID issue and share vaccine and share even the mindset of wanting to be vaccinated and sharing the simple truth of the scientific facts about the disease, it's it's a little discouraging to imagine that they'll, the world will come together to solve the climate change issue, but one can only hope. That is the one. The, the only thing that gives me hope, I guess, is the word or a a bit of optimism is the fact that I do recall, you know, this time last year, we were hearing that, well, if there's going to be a vaccine, you know, it takes the average vaccine six, eight years uh, to get developed and tested and approved, et cetera. And I guess what I was really impressed with was, you know, there is such brilliance at play on, on this planet. 
And if the, you know, if the incentives are correct and if the motivation is there, there's this bizarre symmetry going on between these incredible advances in the science, you know, and of course the um, marketing and political machinations that right uh, as they benefit from the science, they still try to undermine the science. That's the problem. We've got this, we've got this war of facts going on. And the I just feel like the the evil machinations of, you know, sending out uh, lies and untruths into the world. So many people still don't believe that covid is real. And so many people still don't believe that climate change is real. It's just hard to imagine that all people coming together to solve the problem. I know we have the technology and the know how to do it. It's just whether the right people can be in charge to actually get it done. And that's, that's what 2022 is going to show us. And yeah. I'm, I'm not super optimistic about it. it it's totally crazy how wonderful it was for us. I mean, everybody suddenly was locked indoors and we weren't running back and forth in our commute and we were paying attention to what was going on in the world. And we went, we never would have had our event with the Dalai Lama and Greta attended by a million people who are locked up at home and thinking about climate. Right. And I think Bonnie's completely right. I mean, we realized that we really do have the science and people understood it's a real crisis. The problem comes when you get back outside, you know, and you start dealing with capitalism again. Like we watch it and the politicians and who's represent, who are they representing? And, you know, if you look at the technology, who's getting all the press right now? It's Bill Gates talking about we're going to have a technological solution to taking carbon out of the air. It's going to be geoengineering and he's putting all his money and he's the one who wrote the book and he's in all the talk shows. But if you talk to the scientists, it's the trees that are going to take the carbon out of the air. They're taking out 30 percent right now and technology is taking out zero. And what we have to do is stop cutting down the old trees. And, and in the Biden plan. What ended up happening was when that came up in his summit day, somebody said, no, no, we can't plant more trees because that's going to take away agricultural land. And the forest industry is really strong. So it's about having a broken political system and you have to fix the political system to start listening to the scientists to figure out where you're headed as a society collectively. And, and that's the part where you get out of COVID and you go, oh, you know, are things really going to change? It will fall to storytellers who have the who have the the expertise and the craft buttressed by the scientific know-how. It has to become a the more compelling story. You know, if we've learned nothing else from the last 30, 40 years, we like to latch on to stories. Want to add to what you're saying? One of the stories that we need to tell is there is a vaccine. There's several vaccines and they're working, but the only reason they're working now is because somebody believed 15, 20 years ago that right. this could happen. And they invested in something when they didn't know how it was going to happen. And they took a risk. I mean, the investment in the MRNA was a long time ago. And they were doing it and doing it and doing it, hoping that one day it would turn into something. So you have to believe in the power of the scientific process and to take the risks. And I mean, this is a good example of 
invent why it's important to invest in basic research, you know, and to give people opportunities to follow the questions that they have to look for answers. Because I was talking to a woman whose husband works in Paris at the Pasteur Institute, and they'd been working on mRNA for years, not with people, with animals, with mice, hoping that one day, you know, what they were uncovering about the basics and the fundamentals of how the process worked could be useful, not knowing where it would lead. And, you know, their basic research was able to be used more recently to come up with the vaccine so quickly. It wasn't really quick, but but it's had it in place. They had everything. Exactly. Exactly. So I hope this will encourage people to see the value of basic scientific research. But in terms of storytelling, as you were saying, Michael, the problem with that is it's like you're sort of preaching to the choir because people who really need to learn this stuff, the people who aren't believers aren't going to watch this. They're so set in their own little camps that they're going to think this is all lies. This isn't the truth. So storytelling can reach people up to a point, but unfortunately it's not going to reach the people who don't want to be reached. And I don't know what we do about that. Yeah, I guess the only thing that gives me any sliver of hope in that is, you know, if if we look back through history, there did seem to be entrenched belief systems that did change and and they did change incrementally uh, and stories did play a large a a large role in it. I don't think there's any silver bullet, certainly. Um, But I don't know if you guys can maybe work on a 26 part series for Netflix that has a a female scientist documentarian as the as the hero. uh, You might be onto something there. Yeah, you're right. It's got to be entertaining All in the packaging. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, Bonnie Walsh and Susan Gray and Melanie Wallace, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this film. Uh, Making Media Now is going to be devoting at least one episode uh, per month to climate issues. And when I say climate issues, uh, through the prism of making media and telling the story. Uh, So we're going to certainly stay in touch with you. We want to hear more of these stories. And I would love it if you could, you know, maybe keep us in the loop as as your series of films are out in the world uh, and what the response is from the panels and the attendees, because obviously this is not a story that's going away. Thank you, Michael. And it's not just on PBS. It's going to be on global television. Countries like Indonesia and South Korea are already buying it. So and Portugal and yeah. Yeah, it's translated in 20. How many languages are we up to? Now we have 22, but we're gonna have more. And and the Khan Academy wants to use it and they'll translate it into 36. So it's yeah, it's getting out. We'll see right there. We're ending on a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again very much for your time. And it's Michael, uh, thank you. The film is Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, and you'll be hearing more about it uh, on this podcast and also through all of Filmmakers Collaborative's social media channels. 